Well, this is Pastor Daniel Williams with eeleaders.com, and season two is coming Monday, March 4th. We're going to have an entire new season, and I am so looking forward to it. But until then, I wanted to give you a little bit more content to get you excited about season two as we're on this season break. This is session three of the Refresh Conference. It was a local conference that we hosted to encourage and equip church leaders in our area. And this session actually is a Q&A session where I got to have a great time with Pastor David Guzik and ask questions from people at the conference. And I think that you're going to have a really great time listening to this content. And so mark your calendar, March 4th, a new season is coming. We're going to have more interviews for this season. So I thought this would be a great thing. This is session three of the Refresh Conference. First question, we're going to talk about like you and maybe um, Enduring Ward a little bit because there's some questions about that. But uh, someone says, you know, first, thank you for coming to South Florida to bless us with a message. This is I can give this to you so it's proof. It's just another thing of great for your wife. Uh, my question is, how uh, how did you get saved? What, what's your story? I mean, where are you from? How did you I get saved? I was raised in a nominally Roman Catholic family. My parents were not believers, and they weren't hardcore Catholics by any means. But, I mean, much to their credit, and something that's kind of disappearing in the world today, they thought that even though they weren't believers, they thought it's good for the kids to have a religious upbringing. Wow. So they sent us off to the Roman Catholic Church. My dad's background was kind of Roman Catholic, being from a... Polish family. Uh, but my experience in the Roman Catholic Church, I describe it as a zero. It wasn't a plus. It's not like I learned great things about God or anything there. But nor was it a minus. It's not like I got this horrible picture of God or some abusive thing or anything. It was just a zero, just nothing. But the first Protestant church I ever walked into was a place called Calvary Chapel Riverside. The first Protestant preacher I ever heard was a man named Greg Laurie. And when he preached the gospel and gave an invitation, my mind was absolutely blown. I was 13 years old. Wow. And I didn't go forward when he gave the invitation, but I knew that I should have. And I kind of left there thinking, you know what? If I ever go back to that church, that guy's probably going to do the same thing. And if he does the same thing, I have to respond just because I know it's right. So the next time I went to that church was on an Easter Sunday when I was 13 years old. They were having a Sunday evening service with a concert, as they would often do in those days. Uh, Sweet Comfort Band and Mustard Seed Faith were the two bands playing that evening. And Greg Laurie preached, and I went for it. But, I mean, for me, sometimes I think I was born again when I decided to get in my brother's car and go to church that night. Because I knew how it would play out. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And then let's talk about ministry and how God you call, called you to ministry because um, you have quite a history, a longevity, and a lot of different roles. What, what does that look like? Well, when, when I was, uh, I got saved when I was 13 and felt no particular call to ministry or anything in the very youngest years of my Christian life. I had a great environment for Christian growth and discipleship. So I think I got deep roots in the faith and just as a young man, just excited about Jesus. And then when I was 16, the pastor of the small Calvary Chapel that I attended in Ventura, California, because our family had moved to Ventura by then, the pastor of the small Calvary Chapel asked me if I wanted to take over a home Bible study. And so when I was 16, I started teaching a small group of adults in a home Bible study. At 16? At 16. And, you know, I mean, nothing dramatic happened. 
the way I describe it is sometimes this. When I started doing that home Bible study, there were six or seven people coming. And I did it for about a year and a half until I graduated from high school. And when I was done teaching that home Bible study, there were like seven or eight people coming. <laughs> and uh, so it was like nothing but, but God's, God's pleasure was in it. Yeah. And through that, I mean, that was kind of the beginning of a sense of calling that God may have a call on my life to teach his word and to love his people. Let me ask you this. Do you remember the first book of the Bible you ever taught? No. No? Do you remember your first message? I, I, do, I do have some recollection that in that Bible study I did when I was 16, that we went through maybe Romans or Galatians. But I, I don't know if that's where we started or anything, so yeah. I really don't know. I just, I, I know, well, I'm a little... Um, Anyways, I just remember, I remember my first Bible study, because I, I was, uh, started teaching at a very young age as well. I was 17, just turned 17 and started teaching through the book of James. But I was going to say I'm much more, never mind. <laughs> just, who's saying no? Like, I was, they, they, they don't want to know. And it, I was just going to say inexperience. Jeez, that's it. Okay, so from, from your first Bible study... I would match my inexperience at 16 with your inexperience at 17. I mean, that's probably... Yeah. yeah. See, we're equals, guys, all at the foot of the cross. I, 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 didn't, I didn't grow up in a believer's home, though. Yeah. So I was actually ahead of you. Well, probably so. Yeah. We can, we, you can ask me questions later. <laughs> okay, so um, could you, after that, after you got teaching your Bible study, what, what about pastoring in the mission field? Because a lot of think a lot of people I maybe think like Jason like well you must have these offices and mega church and all this different stuff Calvary movement like what did, what did ministry look like evolving in small well contexts? a few a few years later when I was nineteen I was teaching a home Bible study and kind of just it just so happened that nobody in that home Bible study was going to church anywhere that that Bible study was their church um, and a good friend of mine had a similar situation his name was Lance Ralston and he was teaching a home Bible study, and he was another guy with a Calvary Chapel background. So what we did was we just prayed about it, and we decided to put our two home Bible studies together and start Calvary Chapel of Oxnard, California. Oxnard is right next to Ventura on the coast there. That's awesome. So uh, we started it. I was a few weeks shy of my 20th birthday. I was 19 when we started Calvary Chapel of Oxnard together. See? So I, I was there for seven years. Okay. And Lance and I did that church together then. After seven years, I went out to a neighboring, well, not exactly neighbor, but not very far away, a community called Simi Valley, about a 40-minute drive away. We started at Calvary Chapel there. I was there for 14 years. So seven years at Oxnard, 14 years at Simi Valley. Then we felt God calling us to go to Europe and start a Bible college in a city called Siegen, Germany, which is a smaller city about an hour east of Cologne. So I did that for seven years. And then what brought you back to the States? Uh, well, what brought us back was we felt that God was leading us back to the States, especially. Uh, we thought it might just be for a year or two mm -hmm. because we really loved living in Europe. We loved doing the ministry over there. We felt like God was really using it. Uh, but we felt like God gave us sort of a strategic opportunity in the lives of our sons. They were just kind of getting launched out in life. Yeah. And they wanted to do that from California. So, okay, we could go home, and, and for a couple years, we can't pass up the opportunity to really invest in the lives of our young men. Um, one was 18, the other one was like 21 or 22. 
And so we said, okay, we need to move back to California at least for a couple years. Mm -hmm. uh, but after we decided to do that, an invitation came to me from uh, a church I had a close connection with, Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara, if I wanted to be considered for a, to be the pastor there. Wow. And so that's what we ended up doing. Great. But technically speaking, that's not, that wasn't why we came back from Germany. Yeah. Because we were going to come back no matter what. And then what about your wife? How did you meet her and get married? I met my wife at Bible school. When I got out of, of um, uh, high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to serve the Lord. And at that time, Calvary Chapel had a Bible school, not a Bible college, because it was actually a three-month program that they repeated three times a year Wow! At, up at a place in the San Bernardino Mountains called Twin Peaks. Uh -huh. And so uh, we, I went to Calvary Chapel Bible School. I met this wonderful gal from Sweden there named Ingalil. She had come to come to that short-term Bible school. And that's where we got introduced, and it kind of began a long-term relationship or long-distance relationship. And a couple years after that, we were married. Wow. And this, all this is set up to, to this question, because I, I wanted people to understand his background that's smaller churches, big churches, Bible college, young, yeah. old age. What is the secret of longevity in ministry with your marriage, with your family, with just ministerial vocation? What, what, what has helped you in the longevity and the different seasons that you've been in, whether it be the, the time you were a Bible college director pouring into young people or uh, maybe a larger church in the Bible study or even now um, just working on commentary, all that stuff. What, what's, what's been for you the secret or the, the help? I don't think there is one secret. I think there's a lot of contributing things. There's, there's faith. There's just believing God is going to do it. Yeah. No matter what you're doing for the Lord, there's going to be seasons where you feel like giving up. Absolutely. Any, anybody serving the Lord who hasn't written out their letter of resignation, I don't think they've been in it very long. Um, so there's that. There's just faith. Uh, there's a sense of calling. You know, look, this is my calling. This is what God has put me on. There's, um, there's uh, faithfulness in that sense, just continuing on and being dogged and doing it. But you know what? The Lord is good. The Lord really, really is good. And he gives us enough encouragement along the way. You ever play golf? Yeah, terrible. Well, okay, but here's the thing about it. I'm a terrible golfer, too, but this thing about golf is, uh, you know, you'll go out and play around, and for me, 18 holes is, like, too much. I'll play nine holes, you know? Yeah. And I only do that, like, once or twice a year. But anyway, uh, you're just stinking it up out there, and you're thinking, man, this is no good. I can't do this. And then you will hit the perfect shot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the ball will just go exactly where you want it to, and you'll say to yourself, I can play this game. <laughs> now, right. you know, you can't, but it's like, it's, golf gives you like this false hope every once in a while. But the Lord gives you a true hope yeah. where every once in a while, he'll just let some really encouraging stuff happen. And you go, all right, praise the Lord. God is with me on this. It's not all discouragement, not by any means. So. Yeah. Well, here's, here's sort of a discouraging question. Um, if you have to go through, and this stuff is real. Uh, in ministry, this guy said, "What or guy or girl, what do you do to pastor people who love furniture in the church more than they love people? Well, that's a spiritual problem, isn't it? Yeah. It's a spiritual problem. 
So it needs to be addressed spiritually. And, and then one thing is prayer. There's just something on the hold of the hearts and minds of people that are more given to sentiment than to what God's doing now in the moment. So there's that. And uh, as much as anything, I would reinforce continually with the congregation for them to look ahead at what God has in front. I, I mean, I don't mean ahead to the neglect of the present, but, you know, th there's three places we can be looking. We can look to the past, we can look to the present, or we can look to the present. Well, oh, excuse me, we can look to the past, we can look to the future, or we can look to the present. Yeah. And, and I remember reading something that C.S. Lewis wrote, and I, I can't remember where he wrote it, but he talked about the value of living right now in the present, in the moment, because he said that is where eternity touches time, right now in the present. And it's, it's vain to live your life in the past. It's vain to live your life in the future. God wants us to be in the moment right now. And people get tripped up either way. Congregations get tripped up. Yeah. Sometimes they're only living in the past. Now, again, it, it's not like we never look to the past. It's not like we never look to the future. But where we really want to live is in the present. Yeah. Uh, another thing that we go through is the enemy wraps our minds up with discouragement and lying. We just want to give up sometimes. And, and this person says this. What, what is your view on suicide? Uh, is it a sin? Will it send you to hell? Um, how do you explain this? Well, this is difficult because obviously it's such a gut-wrenching thing. And if people have ever experienced suicide from somebody close to them, they know what a traumatic thing it is. Yeah. Um, but I I'll say this. Is it a sin? Yes, it's a sin. It's a sin of self-murder. God doesn't give us, you know, authority to unlawfully take any human life including ourselves. Yeah. So suicide's a sin of self-murder. Is it an unforgivable sin? No, I don't believe so. I don't see evidence in the scriptures that it's an unforgivable sin. So I do not believe what's been taught in some churches that all suicides automatically go to hell. There's no, you know, thing. I, I don't believe it. And, and if you've ever known some people, I mean, I've known people who are genuine believers, and they are in such a funk of depression and despair and, I don't know, lack of any kind of clarity of mind that um, I think God understands that and takes it into account. Now, I, I almost, when you say those words, you almost want to grab them and pull them back because you don't want to do anything that might encourage somebody to go down that path. Yeah. Um, because it is. It is a sin. It's dishonoring. And, and the biggest thing I would say, too, is, you know, I think that people, okay, and I'm talking about a believer. Okay. I'm talking about a believer who might commit suicide. And, and that, well, I mean, listen, I've talked to people. For, for some reason, um, I've talked to a lot more women who are tormented by this thought than men. My family would be better off without me. Yeah. They'd be better off. It'd be better if I was gone. You know, and it's just this terrible thing that comes upon them. What, what they really need to realize and just ask God for clarity of thought in this is that, no, actually, your suicide puts an unbelievable burden on your family. 
and one that will be not, I won't say it's impossible, but man, it'll be difficult for them to shake. So it's not just a sin against yourself and against the Lord. It, it really is a sin against the survivors. Yeah. And so as ministry leaders, um, can you just talk a little bit about how, how do we get encouragement and how have you uh, fought discouragement, depression in your life and your ministry? Because we talked about it during the start conversation about spiritual warfare and discouragement and many mighty men of God and women have gone through these spouts of, I would just want to give up. Well, that's another question that there's no one answer to. I'll kind of give you the idealistic answer. Yeah. Um, man, there's that tremendous passage in 1 Samuel where when David lost everything, he was at his lowest. The Amalekites had come along and conquered Ziklag and taken everything. And this was towards the end of his long, um, of his many years of a fugitive against Saul. And he had gone over the Philistines. He had been living his life as a bandit. I mean, this was in a low place. And then he lost everything on and on and on. And there's this great line in there. It says, and then David, his own men are talking about killing him at that time. And then it says, and David encouraged himself in the Lord as God. Yeah. You know, and, and the, it, is, it is possible for us in Christ to encourage ourselves in the Lord. And, and usually what you do is you just remember God's goodness and God's promises. You know, every one of us. Every one of us can spin out a tale of woe in our life, and sometimes we do that, yeah. and that's okay. You know, it's okay for us to come together sometimes, and to some respect, have a little pity party, and kind of compare whose life, or whose ministry is the worst, you know, and I, it's all right. You know, there's a place for that, um, but we should never, never stay stuck there, yeah. and, and when we think about the blessings God has given us and the reasons for encouragement, they outstrip any reasons for uh, discouragement. I like to say this. I, I am all for people questioning their faith in this sense. Why do I believe this? Is this worthy of faith? Is this true? Am I just making this up? Okay, I'm, I'm for people asking those hard questions about their faith, but here's what we don't do enough. We don't ask hard questions about our unbelief. When it comes to unbelief and those doubtful thoughts, we just kind of like lay down and receive them. Yeah. And so if I'm expected to kind of pr give proof to my faith, which I think is a biblical concept, then you know what? I need to give, I need to demand that my doubts and my unbelief give proof. That's good. You're saying I got to, I should be doubting. I should be unbelieving. Well, then you tell me why. Tell me why. And tell me why the reasons for unbelief are greater than the reasons for faith in God. Hmm. That, that, that's a way that I have, have uh, encouraged myself in the Lord. Now, that's kind of the idealistic answer. The other thing you can do is, look, just, just open up before brother and sister and let them encourage you. Yeah. You know, so, so much of our misery comes from the fact that we kind of demand to bear it alone. And um, when we bear our soul and let, let the love of Jesus come to us through his body. His body. Yeah. It's coming to you through Jesus. But just through his body, then, man, what a change that is. That's good. Um, 
as you study the Bible, encourage yourself in the Lord and, and wrote, wrote a commentary in the Bible, you're always in God's word. What are, what someone asked, what are some study essentials you have found invaluable? What were your go-tos or things you're like, man, this is, that's great? Well, I don't know. What are you talking about? Resources, approaches? What are you talking about? Study essentials. To me, the most important study essential is a mindset. A mindset that says, I, that the mess, I am going to, to the best of my ability, let the Bible speak for itself. I come to the text not trying to make a message from the text. My mentality is the message is there in the text. I just need to let it speak out. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of the core mentality is to the best of my ability, I'm just going to let the Bible speak for itself and let its message come through. Yeah. So, so would you say one helpful thing is the best study essential is a mindset and then knowing the Word of God, like a cross-reference or thing like that? And then what? Well, if you talk about tools and things like that, yeah. uh, if, if a somebody doesn't know how to approach the Bible inductively, then okay. they should take a good inductive Bible study course. Now, which I got to say, I've never taken. <laughs> but what I've, what I've done is I've, ex is I've examined these inductive Bible. Yeah. I kind of have this instinctively inductive approach where I really approach a text. And again, to the best, I let the text speak for itself. I let the message come from the text okay. instead of imposing my message upon it. So, but if you're not trained in your mind to think that way, then you really need to, to, to go through and do the work and begin to train your mind to really think inductively about the scriptures. There's that. And then, and then, all right, I don't mean to make light of this, but read the Bible and read the Bible thinkingly. Here's the number one thing I recommend to people to do is, and I've done this like two or three times, uh, this. Read through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, chapter by chapter, and write a one-sentence summary of each chapter. Not more than a sentence. It's got to be a one-sentence summary of each chapter of the Bible. That will ensure, pretty much, if you let it, it will make sure that you read that chapter thinkingly. But then again, you're not trying to mine every nugget out of it. Yeah. You're just trying to read that chapter and say, what does it say? What does it say? You know, and you're not looking like for every, you know, turn of a phrase to make a sermon out of it. Well, there's a place for that. But what you need, if you want to be a good Bible teacher or preacher, is you need a comprehensive understanding of the Bible. If somebody has really hardly any place to begin with that, I recommend a book to people, Max Anders, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Now, a lot of you, you would think, well, that's kind of beneath me. And maybe it is, but what that book, it's kind of in a workbook kind of form, too. You kind of write in it and stuff. Mm -hmm. But that book, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible by Max Anders, they just put it out in a new edition. It's been actually out for a long time. But, man, it is a great book to give somebody, to give a new believer. or anybody. But anybody who doesn't have an understanding of the Bible story as a whole, and if somebody reads that book and does the work through it and thinks through it, then they're going to know, okay, well, Joseph is here, 
David is here, Paul is here, John the Baptist is here, they'll know how it fits together. I mean, I don't think we can underestimate for how many people the Bible is just this huge mishmash of a bunch of different stories that have no connection at all. And, and look, that's what we need to kind of help our people go beyond. But for us as Bible teachers and preachers, that general flow of what happens in the Bible, it's got to be clear in our mind. That's good. Okay, we're going to hit a couple of Bible questions that are really hard, and I'm going to give you 60-second type of answers you can do. Um, so, Who's huh? Who's Got it. Our stomachs, because it's about lunchtime. Uh, we have a nice catered Greek lunch for you all, uh, a gift on your way out. But before then, before, uh, before that, let's talk about these issues. Romans 8, 28, verses uh, 28 through 30 talks about predestination. Someone says, can you better clarify this passage for me? A predestination is taught in the Bible. Perfect. <laughs> it is. It, 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 normally, normally, the idea of predestination is not a big stumbling block. It, it's, it's what the conclusions people make from the idea of predestination. But the idea of predestination itself, I, I don't think is a very controversial thing. But conclusions that people may or may not draw from predestination, that's, that's another matter. Okay, and so could you give just a biblical understanding or just tell us without... Well, predestination what is says predestination the idea that God's in control. God, God, God is guiding human history towards a general, not towards a general, to a specific goal. Okay. Things aren't aimless. History isn't, you know, ping-ponging around, you know, just randomly, and, and, uh, and, but somehow God's going to make the conclusion right in the end. No, God has a plan that he's working out in the big picture and in individual lives towards his appointed end. Awesome. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Can you explain, someone said, why, um, as the modern, why does the modern church do not believe this passage about head coverings applies to us today? Well, this, this here's is a passage thing. about head coverings. Yeah, I, I, I believe that it does apply to us, but the principle applies to us. I, honestly, I don't know why this is such a hang-up for some people. Okay. Because the principle is eternal. Now, I know we got people from a lot of different church backgrounds, and there may not be all agreement on the roles of men and women in church leadership here. But I'll just speak in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The principle was for them to recognize male leadership in the church, in the church. The way they recognized that in the Corinthian congregation was to wear the head covering. The principle was recognition of God's order of authority in the church. Okay. That's the principle. The principle, I believe, stays the same. How the principle is expressed may differ from culture to culture. In Corinthian culture, for a woman to wear a head covering said... I am under authority. It does not mean the same thing at all in our culture. When you see a woman walk into a church with a head covering, today you think, nice hat, the Amish have come to town, you know, whatever. You could think a lot of different things. Yeah. But I'm telling you, in our culture, nobody thinks, nobody thinks that's a woman under authority. Because it said something in Corinthian culture that it doesn't say in our culture. Hmm. Now, uh, an analogy in our culture would be something like a wedding ring. You know, a wedding ring says something in our culture 
that in other parts of the world or in generations past, it didn't say. So we believe in the principle, but how the principle is expressed in the culture may differ from culture to culture. That's, that, was, that was a pretty good answer. My wife's been complaining about how I have not explained that very well to her for a long time. Thank you. She's wondering why, why, you, why you're making her wear the head covering. <laughs> Funny story, I, I, know, I know a family that the dad was like telling his daughters, and he had a bunch of daughters, you know, you guys are going to wear head covering. That's it. And then the daughters were such skillful negotiators that they had negotiated it all the way down to wearing a headband. <laughs> I say that that's pretty good. That's yeah. amazing. By the time by the time the practice just ended, they had they had worked it down to just being able to wear. Pretty soon it's just going to be like a barrette or something in their head. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Two two more just easy <laughs> quick ones. Okay. Um, who are the hundred and forty four thousand mentioned in Revelation? Well, you know, look, anytime you're talking about eschatological things, the book of Revelation, there's a lot of different understandings. There's different approaches to the book fundamentally that people have. So, I mean, I don't think there's any one universal uh, answer to that from a Christian perspective, but from the way that I organize and understand and interpret the book of Revelation, I would say that those are 144,000 specially chosen Jews in the very last days that have a special role in the very last days before the return of Christ. Yeah, and I know that we have all different views, and, and we go to Scripture for especially eschatology, the study of end times, yeah. those things. But this person says, well, how do we reconcile Jesus' word in Matthew 25 with the premillennial view? And so um, that's that, that question. I, I would have to know more about what specific word that they, what specific passage they would consider in Matthew chapter 25. Well, Matthew 25 is the judgment of the nations, isn't it? Among other things. Why are you looking at me, man? You're the Bible man. I don't, just, I'm, I'm focused on trying to ask questions. No, it is. It is. Yeah, well, I mean, I, all, all I can say is go to EnduringWord.com, look at my commentary, <laughs> look at my teaching, and from my perspective, and from make my make your donation. I'll just say that from my perspective, it fits in just fine with the premillennial view. But, you know, look, um, th th these are things we got to understand that there's things in the Christian world yeah. that believers who love the Lord, who have integrity, who, who take the Bible seriously can come to some different conclusions. Usually it's because they have a different fundamental premise. And I'm yeah. kind of fascinated by that. You know, I, I, you know I've got my premillennial premise. Uh, other people have a postmillennial premise. Others have an amillennial premise. And yeah. I think it's important for us to understand those things to the best of our knowledge. But, I, I mean, I got to say, without equivocation, I think that what I believe is right. <laughs> I mean, I do. I, why would I knowingly hold on to something that I thought was false? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to do it in any kind of proud or superior way. But, I mean, I believe that our... Uh, post-millennial or amillennial brethren, I think they're mistaken. I, I don't think that they're unspiritual or stupid or anything like that at all, God forbid. But I do believe they're mistaken, and I would go through in that. And, and I'm sure, in a charitable way, they would say the same thing about me. I, I hope it would be charitable, yeah. that they believe I'm mistaken about it, but that's okay. And so then We'll, we'll find at the end that I'm Let's right. just close with that. Can you... <laughs> that's right. Excuse me, that one. That's right. <laughs> like... That was... Bad. God's but. shaking his head in heaven right now. Just, oh, David. What are you doing? David, you are in for it. David. That's what he's saying. <laughs> so, 
finish this and just encourage me because we do have all different backgrounds and views and stuff. Talk about firsthand issues, our first priority issues and secondary issues, and just the importance of love and unity in the body of Christ. Because you come from a Calvary Chapel background, but you speak to many pastors of many denominations, many people, and we're a group of people that believe all sort of things, but there is one God. Absolutely. And, and so let's just end with that. What? How do we deal in, in reconciling, trying to reach a city, trying to work in unity and love? Because the Bible says the Lord commands a blessing when we come under unity. How important is that? And how important have you seen that? Look, you know, it's something like a team. And if you want to talk about a football team, um, you, you got a football team and the players, those 11 players, that's how many are on a side, right? 11. Those 11 players on the field, they have very different roles and very different functions, sometimes very different mentalities. That offensive lineman has a very different mentality than the uh, wide receiver, than the quarterback. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, so different roles, different mentalities, different approaches. And I see that in the same way in the Christian world. But here's the thing. We're on the same team. Yeah. And we're all putting up points on the same scoreboard. So I rejoice in the success of, of my fellow servants of the Lord who, who may have a somewhat different. And, and the point of it is, the point of it isn't to make the wide receiver play just like the tackle. Mm. That he's not going to be as good wide receiver. I want that wide receiver to be the best wide receiver he can be. And I'll be the best, you know, offensive tackle I can be or whatever it is that, you know, my role would be. The, 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 the goal isn't to make us uniform. I, I, I'm really into unity, but I'm not into uh, uniformity. Yeah. Uniformity. I'm not into uniformity. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I'll say this. Um, if the entire body of Christ looked just like Calvary Chapel, that would be a loss for God's kingdom. Yeah. It would not be a gain. Yeah. And I say that as someone who's very comfortable in kind of what God has done in my life and through me and stuff in the Calvary Chapel world. And I want us to be just fulfill everything that God has. But it would be a loss for the body of Christ Amen. If, if everything looked just like Calvary Chapel. So I want to be the best offensive tackle or whatever role my would be, I would be uh, or we would be in kind of our Calvary Chapel circle. But, man, I want, I want that wide receiver to be the best wide receiver he can be. And you know what? We're all going to put up points on the same scoreboard. And so good. that's it. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing greater than doing what God has called you to do. And so uh, thank you for just talking.